F-O-U-N-E-A-I-N. This is the Idea Fountain. Life-changing conversations. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of the Idea Fountain. I'm Julie Pilot. I always say my three favorite things are music, creativity, and community. We've talked a lot about creativity and community on the Idea Fountain in the past two seasons, like Exhibit Problem, Andrew Dost and Aloe Black had the conversation about having confidence in your creativity. Dr. Edgar Kahn, on the first episode ever, told us about the magic of time banking in community. Deborah Constance and Sister Pat talked about a place called home. Mike De La Roca discussed what we need to do in our communities to support social justice. And today, it's time to finally have a big, giant music nerd conversation. Salam Remy is not only one of the greatest music producers of all time, who's mastered just about every single format, hip-hop, pop, R&B, Latin, indie, alternative. He not only makes music, but he's made some of the most important songs of my life. Pull up his Behind the Boards playlist on Apple Music and you'll listen to Fuji La, Nas Made You Look, Aini Kamozi, Amy Winehouse, Alicia Keys, Miguel Ludacris, and there's so much more. And these just aren't records. These are records that come on and I gasp. How did you get there? I mean, the thing is when the emotion gets to you, and that's what I'm always digging for, I'm digging for the emotion in the song for myself. So, you know, like it's the thing where... Um, I can sit down and make a record, but then when I really feel the record, I'm dancing, I'm laughing. I'm like, this song is so stupid. I love it. Like this, this, this lyric is so crazy. I love it. There's something about it that's amusing me and making me feel differently about my day. And that's the key for me. So when I'm able to transmit that through that three or four minute piece of audio to people who will never see me or know I exist, that's the beauty of it. Well, and I mean, when you look at some of these records, like whether it be Fuji La, Made You Work, look, Made You Look, Girl on Fire, right. Tears Dry on My Own, uh, All I Want Is You, Virgo, uh, Here Comes the Hot Stepper. I mean, um, like, I don't know how the brain connects to the heart, but it's different. Yeah, but I think somehow, sonically, like, there's certain things. I mean, all the records I made had something in them that reminded me of something else I liked. So it's kind of like when a classical composer uh, learns all of the great works and then turns around and makes his own work. You're able to get that connection. And I feel like, you know, things that I work on are somehow based on things that I loved at one point or another. Right. I just, um, I just saw this documentary called Alive Inside. Um, and it was about... Uh, people that had Alzheimer's or strokes and they were like counted out of the game, right? Like in wheelchairs, not responding. And then they brought in headphones and played music from a certain time in their life. And like they came, they completely woke up. Totally. I mean, that that's part of it. I mean, recently I had something where my dad was sick um, and I had to go to Barbados and get him and he wasn't really responding to me the way I wanted to. But when we were in the, car on the way to the airport he had his george benson bad benson uh cd in the car 
and he knew every like all the notes in the song actually were keeping him going and even recently like no kind of i test him a bit because he's really a guitarist yeah so i'll kind of give him a guitar and just to see what he plays because when he wasn't well he was like playing bass lines on the guitar like one or two notes but he wasn't doing what he normally would do and yeah those things are actually things that keep you going music you know sometimes having kids around different things where you actually have to keep alert to keep going you know when if i'm really tired and i'm driving i sing in harmony to whatever's going on and I keep rolling the windows up and down and I keep singing in harmony because I have to remember I keep my note you know just get off my note I have to keep that mentality but it's definitely um, the musical aspect of what things can do and how they can make you feel that's why I'm here I love the just the whole concept of the healing power of music I've had a lot of artists say to me um, recently that they want to make more music that heals it feels like that's coming up more and more often it's that, I mean, for me, it's always, I, I definitely, at this point, I don't want to make bad vibe music. I am a New Yorker, so we're a little bit uh, aggressive at certain times. So I do like some uh, public enemy feeling, throw an elbow in, go crazy, wild out type of music at some points. But at the same time, most of the lyrical content, you know, there's sad things that happen, but I kind of like come hither records, you know, come through and chill. Hey, what you want to do tonight? Let's, you know the subtle mind um, plucks that kind of make you go, ooh, I never thought about it like that. And they'll kind of just take you all the way to a euphoria space just with the thought of what the lyrics are saying, just with the music is doing. Yeah. I love, you were talking about your dad. I love hearing stories about your dad. Yeah? Yeah, and um, how because of what he did, you really grew up around music and radio, right? Definitely. I mean, my dad uh, came to America at 18 years old. From where? From Trinidad. He grew up Mm -hmm. in Trinidad. And his father grew up, uh, was from Barbados. But he basically ended up getting in bands with, you know, Larry Smith, who went on to do stuff, and with my uncle. And then that's how he met my mother. So by the time he was 19, um, he was actually getting into music in a serious way. And going to Queens College, you know, at the same time with some of the Jamaica boys. And there was a serious jazz set of musicians, Marcus Miller, et cetera, that came out of Queens at a certain time. And by my dad going from that phase to doing disco, Tana Gardner, to working with Belafonte, to doing rap records, because he saw me being into rap, and then becoming an executive, and then also doing, you know, an intern, producer, musician, producer, uh, songwriter, getting ripped off, intern at a record label, promotion, you know, different things. I got a good view of five or six different sides of the business, and that helped me all the way up until the day when I decided to then go, you know, be an executive later on. I took it to another, another level, but I knew what was going on because I took all his experiences and doubled up on them. But I love, you're a big radio nerd. Like, you love radio. And a lot of mm-hmm. that came from your dad, too, right? Definitely. I mean, yeah, because he, he was in it. He had to know what he was doing and what was going to work or not. And, you know, that's kind of the energy. You know, my dad managed, uh, he was friends with Frankie Crocker. You know, that was one of his peoples. But then he also managed, friends with Fred Bugs, who was a promotion, I mean, a, a program director, et cetera. And he knew a lot of radio people. So there was definitely radio people around us, his friends. And we understood what worked for radio. 
But then when he was managing Chuck Chillout, and Chuck Chillout was on his label when he had an album, and then Funkmaster Flex ended up being Chuck's driver. So Flex and I pretty much came up together to the point when Flex was at radio. So I would be with them. I knew what, need, what needed to happen. I write down the records. I'm doing the turntables. I knew where the mic breaks were. I understood the whole flow of it. And then I spent a lot of time around BLS and then eventually Hot 97. You know, even as I was successful as a producer, I would still go to Hot 97 every Friday. Until like 1997 or so, I would actually be there every Friday religiously, you know, sitting down and watching what was happening, writing down records. But it was kind of like being the boss and then taking on an internship so that you kept an eye on the street. Right. And wasn't there something having to do with radio and the jingles in Frankie Crocker? Oh, yeah. he. Um, my dad produced like, uh, like you no, know, he had Audrey Wheeler and different people come do all the Frankie Crocker and, you know, Frankie Crocker, WBL kicking s one more time wb kicking s like he said they would do it all over and he would do it at our studio and they'd be there for hours doing wb kicking s 107.5 w like so i sat there and i understood it and i was just like watching what was going on but i also understood what was coming out of the radio and what it meant to the people Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest part of radio to me. If you're actually able to do something with radio that is now becoming what the people are looking forward to. My goddaughter loves the Hot 97 morning show on her way to school. And then I took a picture with Ebro and sent her a video. She's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, he said my name. He said my name. But they 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 look forward to it. Like they looked forward to their morning coffee. They look forward to their newspaper and the things that are kind of getting their day going. When you have a certain level of radio, you know, I grew up waiting for the rap music to come on the radio on Friday nights or Saturday nights. Before there was a rap station, I was able to, you know, focus the the college radio stations in the middle of the night, Stretch and Bob, you know, Hank Love DNA, P Fine. There were all these different radio shows that gave me ooh, a drop of the music that I thought I wanted to hear that I couldn't get anywhere else. Yeah. So that whole aspect was like radio um, gave us the opportunity to now be at one with the rest of the people in the city that we maybe wouldn't see otherwise. Yeah, it was crazy. I left radio originally because there got to be a point where like the radio was on one side of things and the Internet was way over here. And I knew that. With all the tech companies popping up, there had to be some music people championing the artists. But I found out really quick, like when I was at Beats Music, right? Like you could have the best music taste in the world and you could even know every single artist and you could even have an unlimited marketing budget. And if you couldn't turn on the microphone and say, this is why this record matters, it was completely different. Yeah, I mean, it's that and people get to trust you, you know, the yeah. thing where they get to trust, you know, a certain, even with the playlist of the certain playlists that people trust that they're going to give me what I need. They're, they're waiting for someone to guide them in the direction that they already know, but they still feel enlightened with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with beats. I mean, I remember having a tunnel playlist on Beats Music. Yeah. That was crazy. And I was like, oh, wow, they got get at me, dog. They got, uh done started something by the locks and DMX. I was like, records I forgot happened. But it's so it was obvious when I looked at it, somebody who made this playlist was there. Right. That's the thing. Like when you get music and, and you're able to hear certain levels of it and you can say this person was there. You felt it. You know, I was talking about, you know, being a, someone who grew up in New York. Anybody who grew up in New York, not a transplant, but grew up in New York, 
you know all the words. There I go, there I go, there I go, there I go. You know every inflection of Moody's Move for Love by King Pleasure because Frankie Crocker played it at every night at the end of his show. But wait a minute, for people that didn't grow up in New York, who exactly was Frankie Crocker and why did he matter so much? Frankie Crocker... Um, and like, what was the station like? What kind of station? Well, he was he was there on different levels. So I believe he started at WWRL um, on the AM side, and he was just like sometimes you have a, like a lot of rappers, and then you have Biggie or Tupac, or you have a lot of producers, then you have a Quincy Jones. You have the newsman that you feel like he's dignified and he's giving you what you need. So it was like Frankie Crocker, the chief rocker. He had his talk game down. It was slick. It was almost like a Billy D. Williams of radio. He was somebody who had an opportunity to uplift you just by his stature and the way that he approached being in front of you. So from RL to from WWRL to being on BLS, he was like the guy who became the program director. The guy, if he plays your record, Wow, you're really in because Frankie Crocker, the chief rocker, you know, you know when people start to I see him. I used to love those sign-offs, right? Exactly. Where, like, like, you know, beat the bomb, kiss your mom. All that <laughs> stuff. So then, you know, ultimately, he was just that guy. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. When you get that guy who was the, that man on radio and the voice was there, but then when some people got to see him, Frankie Crocker, ooh, he's the best. Oh, hey, Chief Rocker, Frankie Crocker. You get to do it. Like even all the Quiet Stone voices, like right. all these people, you know, Vaughn Harper, uh, Chico the Virgo, and I'm going to do this and that. And all these different people, you get to feel like you know the person because you always hear them on the radio. Right. And they're talking to you. because yeah. No, they're talking to me. Why? Because I had my radio on and they were talking to me. Yeah. Not every... 10 million people in the city, me, because I heard them and I called up and they answered. I think I almost got, you know, they almost feel like I'm in it to win it. So Frankie was that guy, but Frankie also influenced uh, Mr. Magic, who was one of the most influential radio DJs. And Mr. Magic um, also, you know, super rocking Mr. Magic. He was the Frankie Crocker of hip hop radio. And became that person that, hey, Mr. Magic played my record. Mr. Magic, he knew how to take, you know, his personality and make it bigger than life. And, you know, also had a voice and was able to put things forward. So I think it's just, in, in general, you know, where's the superstars? Like there's somebody who just sings and there's somebody who just raps. But then there's a star that has that thing with them and their name and their persona and how they even approach it. That makes you go, wow, that's that. Well, he was that guy. It's funny that you say that as far as like identifying the superstars, because this is something I've always wondered or appreciated about you. Right. Like I'm a person that I fully believe that everybody matters. Right. right. And it's interesting because um, with the mentoring work I do, there's a Zulu phrase, the Sawabona, and it mm-hmm. means I see you. Right. And, you know, like so often kids are watched, but they're not really seen. Right. And I mean, we're walking around on our cell phones. It's a miracle we see people at all. Right. But um, there's a lot of people in the music business that end up working or setting up sessions and stuff because somebody just got signed and is a huge label priority or somebody has a really powerful uh, manager. But when I look at the artist 
that you've worked with, I know you had to have seen something in them first. Like, tell me when it was the Fugees or Nas or Amy. What were the situations like when you first saw them? Okay, so I'll take them one at a time. With the Fugees, um, Jeff Burroughs, who's now a no super industry vet, he was a product manager at Columbia Records. And he had heard a remix that I'd done for Mega Banton called Soundboy Killing. I used a Barry White sample underneath a you know, guy from Jamaica just doing a regular sound clash um, record, you know, demo, so sound clash record basically on a reggae beat. But it had a thing to it because it was kind of like this Barry White juxtaposed against this big Buju Banton sound and voice and it had all this energy to it. He's like, man, I have this group. The two of the guys are Haitian. They're really talented. If I can get something like that on this group, that would be great. But he wasn't even A&R. He was product manager. So I met him, and I was like, all right, cool. And he was friends with, I was on the air with Flex at the time. So he was friends with Jessica Rosenblum, who managed Flex, just whatever, through mutual friends. So I went and talked to him. And I was like, who's the manager? He said, David Sonnenberg. And I was like, okay, cool. David is actually who I met with that sent me Aini Kamozi in the first place. That's what I was trying to get in the like musical timeline. At this point, Here Comes a Hot Stepper had come out and like it Song of the Summer. It wasn't out yet. Don't... Oh, it wasn't out yet? Mm-mm. So oh, this, I guess, this... did that come out in 96? 95? No, so no. Uh, uh, the first song I did for the Fugees, the session was uh, December, the first week of December, of the, f- the first two weeks of December, of 93 so basically really? what happened was here comes the hot step it was actually recorded in 91 going into 92 um yeah and he was you no know, around we'd done demos and everything for a long time and i'd met david sonnenberg because he had a group called natural selection oh yeah i'll do anything for your love will you take <laughs> me for a funky ride there how about go. that <laughs> so that group so basically frederick who was from, wow, remember that his name? brain cell just so, fired off. So Frederick, who was the black guy in Natural Selection, yeah. the black guy and the white guy, he was like, yo, he they rented our studio that my dad had, and I was living upstairs at the time from the studio, and I'm making beats at that time. I'm doing, I don't know what I was doing, but I had some beats that he was like, ooh. He's like, yo, if I can get you to do some beats on us. So then he's like, hey, can you meet my manager? So I go up to 83rd Street, you know, David Sonnenberg. It was a legend in management at that time. Right. Between Springsteen and Meatloaf and all these people. I go up to Riverside Drive, go into his uh, office, and I sit down. I'm like, hey, how you doing? So he says, hey, here's a scenario. David has a certain voice in the way he approaches stuff. And he says, hey, can you, uh, you know, for the guy in my group really wants you to mix this. Tell me what you think. He plays me the record. At this time, I'm probably 18 years old and i look and i had a super baby face and i looked and he played me a song i was like you know what that song is not a urban or a hip-hop song that's a pop song so you don't need me to do a mix on that and there's no need for me to put it there so save your money keep your money i'm fine and thanks nice to meet you and i'm leaving and you're 18 had you graduated from high school yeah i graduated at 17 yeah got it a month after my 17th birthday When's your birthday? May 14th. Okay. And then I moved from living with my mom in Queens to living with my dad in the city in the middle of hip-hop pandemonium. Wow. So it was all this other stuff going on. It was just like everything was there. But my dad was running. You know, he had classic concepts. They were doing video music box and 
BBD videos, all that stuff. The Poison video, part of the Poison video, shot in our studio. Like the my building was like Hip Hop Central on 53rd between 9th and 10th. It was like, oh, wow. I'll look out the hall, Big Daddy Kane's there waiting to get fitted for videos. Like, okay, cool. I moved into... And like, to be clear, maybe in New York, nothing was cooler than BBD. I mean, no, maybe in New York, there were a lot of things cooler than BBD. But like as a kid growing up in Seattle, that was like the coolest thing out. Yo, Slick blow that part of the video yes. that's our studio that's the same board and mic that i would have recorded here comes the hot step on that's insane right so that, that was like my starting space um but basically oh, what was i talking about dun, 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 oh dun, we were dun. talking about the mixing the record oh so they the got not, not natural selection which of course was again starts yep. there right so i was like nah no thanks so and that's what he wanted you to mix well that's what the artists want to be oh. mixed but i told david Keep yeah. your money. I don't want your money. So for David being who he is to this day, I'm sure it was still he was really impressed by my thought process, the way I approached it. And the fact that I told him, I don't want your money. Keep your money. Because most people would have just hustled. Like, hey, give me a little something. I'll see right. what I can do. I was like, keep your money. You don't need it. This is not your record. I'm not going to mess up your record. My integrity stood in front of my want to do business with him. Yeah. So then when Ianni Kamozi came along, Jimmy Cliff has a nephew named Sipo, Newton Merritt, and he was working with Ianni Kamozi at the time, and Jimmy Cliff was one of David's longtime clients. So he said, hey, can you, um, you know, do whatever, come and meet us, and there's this reggae artist, and I think you might know some stuff and do it. So we made a deal for me to do some demos on Ianni Kamozi. I cut demos. It took years for it to come out. Basically, we tried to get a deal. It was going to cost too much because he had to move to America. Big B and different people offered money, but it was just a little bit of money for the records. They didn't really want to invest. So the thing sat there and it went away like in 92. Hmm. So now here comes 93 when they say, when Jeff says, it's David's the manager. I'm like, okay, cool. And Bernard Alexander, who used to work with EPMD, who I knew well from working with Biz, they actually, David at that time had Fuji's, Nas, Bismarcky, Akinelli, maybe Jungle Brothers too, like somebody else wow. too. So Bernard was like running the, I'm going to be the hip hop side right. of it. And David's the muscle to go get things done. So I said, okay, cool. I'll do it. And then we did a session. So, you know, full disclosure, it was November. I understand that after Thanksgiving, you can't get a check cut in the music industry until after the Grammys damn there. Right. So I was like, you know what? Let me get this first half real quick. Bernard had a relationship with Eric Sermon. Eric said he wants 15. I think I said 12. Well, Eric said he wanted 12,000. I said, I'll do it for 10. Cool. Got my five grand. <laughs> Christmas money, basically. We're going to figure it out. Then Wyclef comes by and he starts rhyming. And what I did with that session was he rhymed for 13 minutes. I picked the best verse the best piece and said, okay, these is, you're going to use this as the hook. You can use that as the intro. It was Chiba Chiba y'all. I'm going to leave with y'all. If rap wasn't something, I'll be the last breathing dinosaur. No, no, no. All this dinosaur, we don't I seen Chiba Chiba y'all. I'm going to leave with y'all. Stop. Like I just edited down what he did. But what I did with the group was I was able to show them their massive talent. These are the parts we need. This is how we need to do it. He sang Born in a Brooklyn Town. He sang all types of stuff. Showed his full, probably five years after that, potential in that one session. But we didn't need it. We just needed a little bit to get the city hot. 
to get this record hot, to get something that was authentic and real. And that was the thing. I saw that they had some potential, but I also showed them what their potential was, and then they did the work on themselves. How did they feel about it, right? Like, if they laid down 13 minutes and you used, like, two lines. Well, that was just Clef. That, that wasn't was even clef. the rest of the group. That was just Clef going and for And were it. they fully unified at that point? Or were they coming in yeah. separate? No, no, they were they all real. Absolutely. So basically, what it, how it started was, I started the basis for the Nappy Heads beat. Just, like, the kind of... And the drums. And then I took Nas's because their first single, Boof Bop, was almost like Onyx. Mm-hmm. So then I took Nas's acapella for It Ain't Hard to Tell and J. Rue's acapella for uh, Come Clean and played it over the basis of the beat. And then I was like, I need you to get in this zone. So when he came back with the rhymes, it was, you in the battle swing, I bring a ring, ring, members king. You know, you in the front, uh, step up and get what? It was similar to the cadence of Nas and J. Rue. He just sat right in the middle with his cleft voice. And he did what I asked him to do. And then I just produced the vocals till it just hit where I needed it to hit. And then with Lauren, she was very arrested developments. Like they got my all words in the vomit hand to van, down phones a hand, down down to van to that. And then I had a fight with her. I don't wear Jerry Curls in the West. Yeah. I don't want to be like Snoop and Jabos and Timber Boots. I don't want to be like Sadat X and um what you're gonna do. We're gonna I don't wanna be like ODB. You're not like him. You're just putting some flavor on these words because this monotone isn't working for you. And that was my production with her. And she was 18 and very um influenceable, but also, you know, holding on so much testosterone. I gotta really be my thing. And, you know, between that time, I think they appreciated it because the record now got them some light. When I came around, we did that song. Now they started playing on the radio. You know, I think Angie Martinez might have told Steve Smith, like, this record's really good. I like it. You should listen to it. And, you know, it actually rolled. But I also made something that Flex was able to play because he couldn't stand Boof Boff. You know, as much as mm-hmm. the promotion person, Taish, was all over it, it wasn't there. But it was the opportunity for me to um, help them get in. But once again, I was in the clubs and the studio every week on the, at the radio every week. You know, whenever Flex was DJ at that time, I would be out until we go to breakfast afterwards and then be looking. I was I was on the pulse of anything going on. I was with all the breakbeat people, you know, the record conventions where Q-Tip and Diamond D and everybody else was. I was there. I was in the middle of it all really feeling. And so if someone was talking to me, I'd be like, you know what, go here, here, and here. And this is how we're going to actually get this going. So it's so funny because we were talking earlier about how a lot of times an artist will come into your studio and you'll make a record that night, right? Mm -hmm. Was it that easy and magical? Or was it sounding like there was a little bit of arm wrestling going on? It wasn't arm wrestling. It just took time. Um, I showed them the stuff early. So we met once Clef came to my house. And then I kind of said that. He said, hey, you really got to meet the girl in the group. The second time they came by... Um, Proz and Lauren with him. Proz was like, hey, my friend Kobe always talks about you. He goes to college with me. I was like, all right, cool. So they all were open and, you know, the management was open. But did the you know absent. it was going to be magic? I can't say I, can't say I, I knew it was going to be huge, you know, because honestly, I didn't know my own potential. Hmm. You know, I didn't know how far that would go. It would be like, yeah, I didn't know. I, I didn't know that they were going to be the biggest group in the world two years later. Um, I was still learning my opportunities with that. So right after that, we did the vocab remix and then we were doing something. I was working on Spike Lee's film Clockers. And then during that session, 
we came up with the Fuji La space. And then the score was based around. So David comes back to me, says, hey, I want you to produce the whole album, but you can only be a 25% writer. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. I was like, mm, but what if I write the whole thing or what if I write nothing? Give me what I actually participate in. He's like, now you can be a 25% writer. That's the most you can be. So I was like, you know what? Have Clef play me the ideas he has. He played me the basis of the Ready or Not beat. Um, he let me hear, I think Forte might have helped. John Forte might have helped with Cowboys. They played me a few other ones. I was like, you know what? You have the basis for it. And at that time, Q-Tip had just mixed Mob Deep's album, you know, there, you know, with the Shook ones and everything else. So I was like, if anything, I'll help y'all mix some stuff. You record the album. I'll come back and listen to it on the back end and see what's what. And I wanted my time. You know, I wanted the opportunity to help them. But it was a mentorship where I was able to say, look, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. That was that. And I think that's really where our um, relationship still is. You know, I spoke to Clef last week. He's like, hey, Thelonious Monk. He's like, he's just always, I have records that I've done with him in the last 10 years that sound like Fuji records. He sounds like Fuji's. I don't even say he sounds like, he sounds like it. He feels like original Clef. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. He's like, yo, I listen to that. Yo, it's perfect. I just want to change this, this, and this. Here's the files. He can't change it because it's already just a certain energy that I was able to capture his innocence again mm. without him even knowing what happened. And I think that, you know, the arm wrestle isn't so much an arm wrestle. It's like how relaxed you are and then you just do what you know how to do without thinking. And then how that's supported. You know, a lot of times with people, they don't say what their real ideas are because they think they're going to get shot down. Right. But when you're in a space where you feel like I can say it, and then I'll be like, hmm, I like that. That's crazy. I like that. I think, and then I think do it. I think that's really important. And I think music is better when people are making it with their own crew. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, right. there was a bad, in my opinion, a bad time in the music industry like 10, 15 years ago, especially with pop, where they'd sign an artist and just try to put her with like 10 giant producers. They still do it. No, it, it's like a it. lot of bad blind dates, right? It's speed dating, and which understood, like I understand the speed dating. I just have to find something that works for me. I mean, being a remixer and being a producer, I get it. You know, even now, there's a load of people that want me to work on their artists, and I'm looking. I'm just at a point in my career that I don't necessarily want to spend a whole lot of time developing someone else's artist, unless the artist is somebody that I feel like. You know what? You got that fire. What are we gonna do to get this going? Um, so I, for me, it's, it's, it's trying to find that thing that makes me feel like it's there because now I've learned, you know, I need Kamozi came out, the Fuji's, so Kamozi starts going, the Fuji's had a couple of the local hits. Yeah. 95, here comes the hot stepper goes crazy. And then the score comes right back around and goes crazier. Which is, so, the, is so hilarious because I was working in the radio like at Cube in Seattle and right. I just graduated in 95 right. and I was doing every shift I could. Like I was on the air from like 11 PM to 6 AM and then back the next day at like right. two o'clock. And, um, those records, I mean, I must have played them a thousand times. And I've told you before, I need Kamozi, here comes a hot stepper. We had to cue it up on the little Denon CD players because it starts with that. <laughs> and then hit nah, it, nah, nah. you know. That's and something so, I actually like, did. Like with the jingles, mm -hmm. like if you had the Cube 93, hit it, you know, it sounded fresh, but you on purpose. 
So me on purpose, what I would do is not, I told this uh, DJ Premier the other day, part of my science is sometimes being very quiet at the beginning of a record because then it makes you turn it up. If you put a very loud noise at the beginning of a record and then the record's too low, then it becomes, you, the loud noise comes on, the person turns it down, now they're listening to it low. So I put a swish, 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 swish. So then now you're like, I think I hear something. You turn it up and that goes, hit it. Nah, nah. So it's almost like it makes you turn the record up. Same. What's the deconstruct the beginning of Fujila? I mean, that like sounds like a haunting. Uh, so with Fujila, what I did was I had a lot of sounds in there, different little road shops and like, you know, weird jazz stuff and bass. But I actually took it and put like a LFO, like a wave thing on the whole track. So all the music in Fujila sounds like, oh, yeah. dirty bastard. And intentionally, I made it all because I felt like I was doing it and it was making the speaker wobble. So when people hear Fujila, like, like this bass is crazy. The bass is actually not just like a bass. It's like a bass. So now it's your whole car is rattling. You're like, wow, that was me being silly. You know, using technical stuff to mess with people's speakers who I don't know. Um, you know, being technologically uh, sharper than maybe I needed to be at the time. I love it. Going back to the original question, what did you first see and did you know, like, who the person was when you met Nas and Amy? Well, Nas actually, you know, I met early because Akinelli and I went to junior high together. So, so like, how old were you when you met him? When I first met Nas, because I didn't really work with Nas until 2001. Oh, okay. So when I first met Nas, out of Majiggy, like 20, 19, 20. Oh, it's funny because like when I first heard Nas, he was older than me. So he never seemed young to me. Right. right. And then it was like, I saw the Roxanne Shantae movie right. where they had like a little mini Nas running around. Right. And I mean... He started young. He started young. I mean, he was doing stuff, but I, I actually met Nas, you know, it would have been like 1991 when right. they first were moving around. And I used to live, like where my dad's studio was, was across from the main club, the Red Zone, where Puffy had Daddy's house. Mm -hmm. So everybody would be there, then we walk around the corner, and everybody's like, hey, what's going on? And I remember I saw Large Professor Nas, like when Barbecue first came out, when he was putting them on, and Akinelli's like, yo, Salam, what's up, you know? And I knew Akinelli since 83 when we were in junior high. We had sex ed classes together, of all things. <laughs> it's seven to eight. And he's like, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, I'm calling my album what? Vagina Dina. I'm like, why? He said, you know, he says, you know why, right? I'm like, why? It's because I'm a cunning linguist. Get oh it, Mr. Forgia, Mr. LaForgia's class. Mr. LaForgia, like, it was just like stuff literally, like, you know, when you have these experiences yeah. with people from your 11 and 12 years old, like, y'all can still lives in Miami and pops up like, yo, I got an idea. Check this out. Check this out. You ain't gonna believe this. Like, you know, he has a beard down to his gut and it's just like a whole nother life. But at the end of the day, I saw him take his comedy somewhere else. But back to Nas, I met Nas, yeah, he was like 17. He was probably 17, going on 18. And then we would see each other in passing because after a while, you know, I probably said something slick to Large Professor. Then I'm working with Akinelli, but, you know, it's my boy, but Akinelli's always hustling. So I'm like, ah, I'm over here doing my thing. And then I ran into him when we first really started working together. So once again, everyone knew that Nas had something else with his words from his first rhyme, Alive at the Barbecue. And then I've got to remix Coogee Raps, um, 
Fast Life. And, you know, someone at Epic had you on the Coogee Rap side had me do it. And I was like, wow, I got Nas and Coogee Rap. And I did a mix called the North Side Mix that people still play to this day. Um, you know, on the hip-hop underground, et cetera. And we were, 2001, I, he was on the Fatty Girl record that FUBU put out. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing a record for Beanie Man. So we were out during Grammy time in L.A. And he was kind of like laying low like in LA and living in Santa Monica somewhere and he's just like yo what's up good to see you. you got any beats on you so I gave him a CD or something I had with me he was like cool give me a two way number so we beamed each other yeah. two way stuff and then he's like yo I need this track that's like like murder music but with a little this and that and the third and I created the track that became what goes around on Stillmatic. So that's me playing live guitars and organs and percussions and chopping up some super cat drums. But it had an energy to it. He's like, yo, nobody gave me any music like this. I didn't get anything that's this potent and different. So he's like, yo, I'm really happy I got this track from you. And he came back to New York and then I was doing a Sade remix and I put him on. But <clears throat> our... Um, interaction first musically was what goes around which still sounds like what the hell is this and that's what it was we both have similar experiences and you know from queens i knew the guys that grew up in his building we he's a year younger than me but we still had parallel eyes and you know even a lot of the guys that i still use as musicians to this day were in his dad's band wow so like we have when we talk about something like now, nah, when that came out, nah, I ain't like that either. I like this song yeah. or that song. So we just, you know, we're, we're great friends on that level, but we have parallel worlds and a great chemistry um, as far as putting stuff together. What about him was there? I think he just actually had the words. Amy now is a different thing. Um, I just moved to Miami 2002. She heard a record. This is all crazy. So basically, in 2001, I saw Nas. When he gets back to New York and he's going on the Sade remix, the day I got to do the Sade remix was the day my mom passed. Wow. They called me. It was my 29th birthday, sat in returning, kicking and laying on top of my head. And basically, um, I got the call. I was on the phone with Andrew from Sade, the band. And he's like, hey, we need this mix by Friday. Do you think you'll be able to get it done for Lover's Rock? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pull it off because all I could think is what would my mom want me to do? Like I worked this hard. Sade remixes weren't going out to any and everyone in 2001. Well, and not only that, like if you're going to have an energy around you, you know, as you're going through something that emotional, I mean, I don't think there'd be anything better than Sade. Talk about was, healing music. It was that, but it was also I had pressure to deliver. Right. Like, you know, I live a good part of my adult life. My mom had multiple sclerosis, but she pretty much got sick the day I moved with my dad. Mm. And I was like, go home or not. So I had a bit of a pressure on my head. And, you know, she passed on my birthday. I was born on Mother's Day. It's like it's all, wow. all this. This is like 20 circles going around. So, boom, Nas comes. He sees me. I'm like, yeah, my mom passed yesterday. But I got to get this done. He's like looking at me. But I didn't know his mother was sick. Wow. And then also during that time, I was working with Left Eye. We did a song called Block Party, which is the one that got her to say, hey, cool, I'll go do the new TLC album. The video didn't come out the way she wanted to. It didn't get pushed away. Well, she was mad. She was in, you know, Costa Rica, whatever way she ended up passing. But the record Block Party is what Amy Winehouse heard and said, whoever did this record, 
they're going to know what to do with me because this record just has something to it. Cool. Whoa. So Amy Winehouse may have never been connected to you if it wasn't for Left Eye. Exactly. And it keeps getting deeper. So basically... Whoa. So so during this whole time, and like I said, you know, the universe works how it needs to work. So Left Eye comes. We finish Block Party during that week. She gives me a plan. Nas is looking like, wow, we finished the songs for Stillmatic. Cool. They end up going through the Sade remix. Never comes out, mind you. I had three different versions. The Bossa Nova version, a hip-hop version with Nas on it, and I did a reggae version that had Spragga Benz on it. Spragga plays it in Jamaica, thinking he's being slick. Sade hears it in Jamaica, calls back to England, cusses everybody out. It's like all the stuff. Was it a remix of By Your Side? No, it was um, Lover's Rock. It was oh, the song okay, Lover's Rock. You are my yeah. Lover's Rock. So it was like, I did three mixes of Lover's Rock. So basically what ended up happening was, cool, we now, that doesn't happen. Left Eye's Black Party comes out. Amy hears it. We get to, uh, I started working with Miss Dynamite from the UK. We get to September. September 11th happens. My dad decided his father passed in January of that year. He's going to move to Barbados. I'm in New York. My mom passed away. So and I'm just when like, September 11th happened, you were in Queens? I was still in the city. I was in the city. Oh, you're so in the I was, city. I've been living in the city since 89. Okay. So I was at my dad's apartment in the city on 43rd and 11th. And we could see the Twin Towers. She was like, Salam, look at the TV. So I'm looking and we could see it like a plane hit the Twin Towers. But we also could look out the window. He's on the 43rd floor. We could see... Um, Forty, yeah, we was on forty third floor. He could, we could see the building, and when the first tower fell, he was like, "Whoop, that's my cue. I'm moving to Barbados. I'm out of here." That's what your dad said. That's what he said, and I was like, "Wow!" I went from having two parents yeah. to having no parents in four months, basically. Do you have any siblings? I have siblings at that time. I knew I had siblings on my mom's side who were, you know, they were younger. Yeah. But I was just like, wow, this is something. So then now October 1st, 2001, Miss Dynamite's mom is like, hey, my daughter's not going to New York. I need a break. I had all this stuff going on. I go to Miami with her. We record. So now I have bought this big studio in New York that I bought with my basically with all my Fuji's royalties right. up to the date at that time. Big SSL room across the street from the Hit Factory. It's called a studio called Soundworks. Teddy Riley did a lot of great work there. Staley Dan recorded there. It's in the basement of Studio 54. I still have all the equipment, but basically this is my space. And I couldn't see myself leaving New York. I just didn't really come to me. But now I'm sitting in Miami and I'm relaxed. And it's October going into November. And it's really nice out. And we're working on Collins Avenue. And somebody's like, hey, you can get a little room here. And it's like 500 bucks. And you, you know, might have a vocal booth already. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to get some equipment cases. And all of this to get back to the Amy story because it's crazy. So to get some equipment, put it, the equipment in cases. And then, you know, I could roll some of all this gear that I have in New York and send it to Miami, ship it. So then that way I could just kind of record here and then go back to New York and mix. Because I have to keep my mix room and my SSL and all these things that I thought was making my sound. Right. <laughs> Little did I know, I got everything in the studio, case fit, all the drum machines, keyboards, outboard gear, everything. As the cases get there, you know what? Put it in the cases to make sure it fits because I just ordered, you know, 
35, 40 cases from this guy in Nashville. I want to make sure it all fits before I finish paying him. And it's there. They put all the equipment in cases. The parking lot that's on the other side of the wall gets knocked down. What? It'd been there forever. It was a five-story parking lot. They knocked it down. Now there's a 70-story building there. But I was in the basement next door to this building. The studio starts to flood. All the equipment's in cases. They push it out to the front. I call the 18-wheeler. I'm out of New York. Goodbye. Cool. Now I'm in Miami. My 30th birthday's coming. I'm like, look, leave me alone. Everybody leave me alone. If it's were, you not, going, were you going through it? Like, oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, I lost my mom. I didn't really have a focus. Like, where am I doing? Like, you know, I was looking back at all my overhead. I'm spending money like I have 12 kids. I have none. Right. I'm 30. I've had a successful 10-year career easily, but I really had longer than that. But And the music industry is changing at this point, too. Uh, the music industry was changing a bit, but I was still in a good position as far as where I was because right. I was working in many different spaces. So... By 2000, I was working in Latin space. So I, I was in Miami. I was working with Ricky Martin. I worked with Santana. I was helping with Robbie Rosa, all those different things. On the other side of the wall, I was doing um, hip-hop, all the reggae artists that would come up. I'd already established myself there. I was doing R&B records. Like, I really had four or five genres. So for me, I had an ability to move around and do different things. Yeah. But cool, my 30th birthday, May 14th. I'm like, just give me a minute. Day of Atonement, it's one year for my mom passing. Let me sit down and really figure out where I'm at. I found an apartment for $775. I got a little writing room. I'm here. Unless it's good people, good music, good money, don't call me. I'm semi-retired. And if it's good people and good music, the money's going to come. Cool. So Guy Moot, who was running EMI Publishing in London, like this girl came in. She really wants to meet you. They sent me some demos. It's Amy, 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 all this other stuff. And I'm like, I couldn't tell if it was like fake Erica Badu, Neil Soulish. I didn't even know what she looked like. I right. was just like, what is this? Would y'all leave me alone? Like, I'll meet the girl. He's like, just meet her. Just meet her. Meanwhile, she had gone to them and got signed because she was trying to find the guy who did Black Party by Left Eye. Mm-hmm. That's, so, I, that's just so, still so, seems so random all right, so, to me. So, more than that. So the left eye actually had passed that April yeah. in Costa Rica of 2002. And the meeting, I realized when Amy passed, I looked back at the dates of our first session. I remember it was the Monday. It wasn't the week after my birthday. It was two weeks after. And it was May 27th, 2002. May 27th being left eye's birthday. Wow. And it keeps going on and on. You know, like Amy's funeral is on my mother's birthday. Really? Like, you know, around my birthday is when my grandmother passed. And then I'm now, oh, no, my grandmother's funeral is on my birthday. And I'm sitting there looking at the coffin. And I can hear Amy saying, singing the song. And I just heard her sing. Like, all the, all the things happen the way that they're supposed to. But once again, she walks in. She starts singing. Um, She has a guitar. And... She starts singing Girl from Ipanema. Mm. And it lit the room up. And I just looked and I was like, oh, you can sing. 
I couldn't tell if she could really sing, sing. Right. And she had pipes and she was playing guitar. And I'm like, girl from Ipanema. And I just done a bossa nova version of the Sade record the year before. So I was already like, okay, cool. You're in another space. And this can be something interesting. So I introduced her to Moody's Move for Love and Mr. Magic and all the records. I grew up as jazz standards in New York. But I said, I'm going to make your album more hip hop and more jazz than neo soul i didn't want it to be anything that was neo Soul. anything that felt too neo soul the song halftime on the lioness album i didn't use it because it felt too close to what could be that at the time i wanted it to be very jazz and that's where in my bay comes in very hip-hop i use the same beat i use for nas cool but then we went big band on the music and kind of had the balance of it and then she had to still kill with her lyrics and we did i heard love is blind and cherry the first day I liked her sense of humor. She liked mine. I wrote F me pumps. She sang it like it was six. It sounds like what I would say. Yes. And we just had a chemistry and a bond. But once again, good music, good people. And that's really where it stuck. But I did realize at that point, like when she tried to sing, I heard love is blind over at the end of the album. She sounded too mature. So it was almost like, um, I had to say to her, you sound like you're too good already. You sound like you're 50 years old. I need you to sound like you're 18 and singing this. So we can't use these new vocals. And for her, she's like, oh, okay. But I also looked at it as like, if this is what you're doing with you're 18, what are you going to do by the time you're 25? Right. And it was back to black. Right. What What about, Um. I, I was dying to ask you this earlier before we were recording and I saved it. Um. You were telling me that... Um. Throughout your life, people have always come to you for advice, right? right. You're the producer, you know, right. uh, like you're putting everything together and you feel like at times, why are they asking me? Right. How do you deal with the emotional pull of working with an artist that is really sensitive or maybe self-destructive and like still focus on the professional when like personal may be unraveling? At this point, I can't do it. I opt out of it. You know, I've had a couple of experiences when I got into a space with an artist and I was watching them. Um, what I've been saying is, you know, I felt like I was putting core changes to people's problems and then the song would come out, but the problem would still be there. Right. Um, I'm very aware that certain artists that I've worked with had different issues um, that were emotional issues. They're life issues. You know, how do you deal with your offspring and your ancestors? How do you deal with your kids and lack of or however that goes? And how do you deal with your parents? Those uh, two relationships, more than external ones, a lot of times drives people in different directions. And, you know, Nas calls me a psychologist that knows how to make music. So for me, the aspect of me knowing, you know, like I said, before I'd be able to find a way, like say whatever you feel, you know, oh, you hate your ex-boyfriend, call him. See if he's going to answer the phone and give you a good lyric or he's not going to answer and you're going to imagine he must be out doing something and you're going to finish the song. So I was able to, I don't say take advantage of it, but I did make a lot of money off of the Heartbreak songs. Hmm. And I understood it because I understand Helping what happens. Helping people channel it. Helping people channel it, but I also understand that it's a universal emotion. Like, 
Um, laughter, sorrow, and nosiness keeps going. So, you know, when you have something that's I'm sad, but now you're telling me why, people are so nosy, they will continue to watch it. That's why false reality TV works. Um, and when you look at everything that happens, you know, lions, tigers, and bears, or, you know, but Amy, see, the thing with Amy is that she was making fun of it all the time. Right. You know, so I heard Love is Blind was really her just being, I was like, so how are you going to do it now? I, we sat there the whole song. I was like, so what you going to say now? What you going to say now? Uh, you know, he looked like you. He looked like you. No, it wasn't you. It's not me. It's not infidelity. It's not cheating because you were on my mind. He looked like you, but I heard Love is Blind. We laughed for like a whole day. Had to go get some food. You're an asshole. And I love it because you sat there and talked about how you cheated on your man because you heard love was blind because the guy looked like him. It's like something funny about the way she would approach it. Um, And that was my thing. I love the way that, you know, even lions, tigers, and bears, like lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Mm. Like, you know, I'm not scared of lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. And I'm scared of loving you. And then still what I was able to bring out of the music of that but it was brilliant writing and I love people who have a distinctive voice and a distinctive pen. So for me, you know, when you ask like, what is it the, about someone that makes me want to work with them? They have a distinctive tone in their voice. So you actually can hear it. It doesn't sound like it's just melting into the music or generic R and B tone or generic song tone. They have something in their voice that bites. And then they also have a pen where they're actually able to say something that makes you look and go, who did you really say it like that? Wow. Okay, now I'm rethinking my approach to this conversation. The conversation's good. It's interesting because uh, somebody told me once that um, scientifically guys listen, guys pay attention to beats, right? And women pay attention to lyrics, but lyrics are really important to you. I mean, some people have said I'm able to tap into my feminine side right. or my you know that side of my brain because I'm paying attention to lyrics. But I also realize that those lyrics are what's actually made me be able to stay here longer. When I stopped paying, once I had confidence in my beats, now I can focus on what's being said because I can go back and do the beat over. I always you know heard that Teddy Riley would make three different tracks of the same song and then keep the best one. So it was the same thing. Like for me, it's an aspect of knowing I can arrange a record however I want. Now I'm going to just focus on you getting your story across and giving me a good vocal and some good lyrics. And now we can do orchestras, we can do breaks, we can break it down, I can switch it up, whatever it is. And sometimes I might just leave it alone the way it is. But I just I'm absolutely clear. Once I focus on lyrics more than music, my career took another level. I wanna hear um your take on success because everybody reacts to success differently, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know one group that was a trio and when they had success, like one person in the group bought seven cars, one person like decided they want to go start a different band and one person panicked and like went and stood like moved to the woods. Right. Right. You are the what seems like most normal, successful person I've ever met in my life. I mean, I'm eccentric in my own ways. You know, I my business manager is like, you have more companies than like that's your drug Do habit. You? Oh, what kind of companies do you have? I just have entities. I keep breaking it down. I'll start different things. It's all related. You know, for one point, I had uh, movies that I was investing in. I have music libraries, Mm. things that are still related to my business. But I'll just expand it. I'll hire somebody else. I think they can do this. I want to open the publishing side of this. I'll continue to do that. I got that from my dad. 
I buy websites. I buy domain names, rather. Right. So I have probably like 75 domain names. Y'all own you ain't Beyonce.com. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because I had a lyric in a song where it was like, um, basically it was, it was a little story. And it was basically like a girl was trying to fit in so mad. And she said every time she would go to the red carpet, they'd be like, you ain't Beyonce. Nobody wants to see you. And she felt all broken. So then she went to Cuba and found herself and found herself doing a whole nother type of spiritual music. And then eventually she found who she was because she stopped trying to be who everyone else thought trying to be like who she thought everyone yeah. else wanted to be like so but it just made me i was like what the hell was that's Beyonce? so funny because we were doing it earlier like mm-hmm. i should buy that domain name is a cousin of that would be a good band name <laughs> like how often yeah, do you sit around like exactly. oh that'd be a good band name i do that all day i mean I, honestly a lot of artists sit around me and i'll talk and then they'll, I'll say something, but that's good. I'm taking that. Yeah. Then, oh, yeah. What'd you say? Oh, yeah. I'm taking that. Whatever that conversation is, my conversations turn into my records. And I'm just trying to have a funny conversation. It's probably a little tongue in cheek sometimes, a little slick comment, you know, making a joke about something. I have a sense of humor. Um, and that sense of humor, sometimes they're like, Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Let's do it. And that's the best part. Yeah. You know, with Amy, she loved the fact that oh, I can curse on records. Yeah, I can curse. Oh, whew, I'm saying anything. Like she'll say, and then you're, I'm such a lady, and you're my lady boy. Right. You know what I'm saying? Are you gay? Or oh, stronger than me? Uh, you know, you're longer than frozen turkey. You know, like the turkey's gonna take that long to defrost. She's an asshole. She just wanna say different stuff. But I think that, um, yeah, I mean, success. I mean, I'm eccentric in different ways. I'm just, I'm a bit of a hermit. I'm a loner at this point, but I'm not because the people who I have relationships with, we have 35 year relationships. So the same conversation picks up when I do talk to them or whatever it is. And you have good people around you. Yeah, I have good people around me, but I also just realized at a certain point, you know, as I was approaching my 40th birthday and Amy passed, I needed to, um, she arrived after my 30th birthday. Was gone before my 40th. Wow. But made her mark. I've been producing records since I was 14 professionally. And I was 40. So I went and, you know, did five years working for the great Mr. Doug Morris, who I was able to learn loads and loads and loads of things for, as far as perspective. Yeah. Um, But for me, it was a thing where as many things I can do, there's nothing that I can do greater than this peace of mind that I can have knowing I did the best that I could do. Mm. If I don't produce any more records, I'm good. I'm very, very, very satisfied with my creative career. I'm very satisfied at this point with the effort that I've made to help others around me. If I felt like I maybe shortchanged you and didn't give you enough energy or time or attention, I did the best I can do with that. Now I'm at a place where I'm at peace where if today's the last day, it was a good day. Did I inspire somebody? Did I do some good stuff this week? I ran around and talked to a bunch of people. I gave time and attention and thought and a little energy to a bunch of people that I just met. Cool. Did I contribute something musically? I can't complain about the music that's out unless I I put something out there that was cool. So I feel like, you know, the normal part of success is that Yes, I'm still looking for a quiet, cozy corner to laugh. Like, 
I still want to go to the barbershop and not have a conversation about what artists I've been in with or this and that. Yeah. Unless it's my friend friend. But I still want to go and be able to watch people and, you know, live a life. You know, at the end of the day, I'm a human. Um, I just separated what I've done will be here when I'm gone. What I do means that if I do it, you're going to like me. If I don't do it, you're not going to like me. I'm a fan of what you do. Great. I'm not doing anything, though. Oh, cool. That's another thing. And then who I am. Who I am is a guy sitting on the chair that wants to crack a joke. Yeah. And that's it. If you got some jokes, come by. Crack the jokes. All right. I'm going back inside now. As much as as much as you talk about jokes, I really was noticing as we were talking how many times you brought up like things bigger than us or like the way the universe works. Oh yeah. Or the numerology or astrology, right? right. Like mm-hmm. I was listening to Virgo earlier, then I was listening to something else and Clef was shouting out astrology signs. Like <laughs> where me, yeah. where does that all come from for you? I think my parents i think they both you know uh the pisces and the leo and they actually had a book made for me when i was like three years old of exactly where the stars were and whatever computer whatever technology they had at that time and i read it when i was about 21 so you're a taurus taurus gemini moon virgo gemini. rising okay um but it was like a full like thing of all the planets yeah. it's like a 50 page little book and when i read it there were things that were written in the book that i was just realizing about myself as i was growing up and maturing it scared me because i'm like well did i not have a choice in these different ways there are parts in the book that say what type of personality i have that i thought i got from my parents or my grandparents right so it's almost like you're born to a certain time to these people at this time because you're to teach them a lesson, they're to teach you a lesson. And, the, you know, my respect for the universe, you know, my grandfather was a pastor in the church, but my respect is really um, for the higher being that makes it possible for me to be here, you know, for the spirits, the worlds, whatever is keeping me going. There's no way at all that I could say I was able to come across the talented people, the great people, the experiences that I've been able to have in my life, that I was able to do it. Well, similarly, when you're making music, do you feel like you tap into something? It's either like there's an energy there or not, or is it always there? I feel like it's my uncles, yeah. I feel like my, my mother's brother's. Um, both passed away, like one passed in 83, other one passed in 93. My dad's brothers are still with us, but I feel like I'm part of a band of the spirits performing that are musicians. That's beautiful. I've heard you say ancestors a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, when I say ancestors, it's just ultimately, like, you know, what do we do when someone's really stressed out? You know, do you have your parents? If you don't feel some type of way about it, it's either you didn't have a good relationship with that, but those are the things that no matter what you have going on good, those are the things that'll shift up your perspective on your life. When your parents are ill, you have to take care of them. Like my dad was sick in Barbados and I had to bring him back and I'm looking at him mumble. I'm like, wow, I got a dependent. And this guy who peeped me the game now is not able to take care of himself. What's going on? So that was like, you know, it's life stuff where you have to deal with it. And the same thing, you know, I don't have any children, 
But I imagine if your child is sick, whoa, my job, my friends, my car, Nothing my matter. money. If you are a sane person that's you know has the emotional balance, those things should affect you more than anything else. So I'm just clear on, you know, you have a plan, then life kicks in. Right. All right, cool. So plan is what you want to do, but life kicks in. And these are the things that, you know, as a tree, as a human being, those are the things that will get you. I mean, you know, a loved one, you know, that's one thing. You know, I love you, uh, my baby, my boo. Those things come and go possibly, but ancestors and offspring is definitely the balance. I talk a lot in the podcast about instincts and intuition. Mm -hmm. And like, do you feel like you have a strong intuition and you use it? I feel like it's too strong and I actually try to run from it. Yeah. How so? I just, all day long, like, you know how sometimes somebody would be like, hey, I was just about to call you. That happens to me every day, all day. Really? All day long. There's not a point in any given day when somebody doesn't go, hey, I was just about to call you. Um, Dang, that's crazy. I was just thinking about you. You know what I need to? It's almost to the point where, you know how nowadays when you can sit down and you'll say, okay, uh, I text this person, they don't call me back, but then you go on Instagram and they hit you right back. Right. It's like, hello, like, would you ever see anything? Well, that's how I feel like it is with life with me. If I sit down and I think about somebody, I start having a conversation with them and then they'll call. I'm like, hey, what's up? Like, it just keeps going. So I have... A super, I have a super strong intuition, but I also want to enjoy the minute that I'm living in. So I try not to um, <clears throat> make it into something else. Like, I don't want to say, I know it all. No, I know I want to be ready for it all. Right. This is, this is the difference. I feel like <clears throat> I could talk to you all day and I have like nine more questions, but we've already been talking for over an hour. Um, I guess. Uh, you can I, ask the questions though, because when are you going to get to ask them again? Well, I don't know. I was like, should I do a part two? <laughs> okay. okay maybe, we possibly. Do, maybe we do a part two at my house at some point and we celebrate you in LA with a bunch of people. Possibly. Oh, now you're making, you're stressing me out a little bit. Okay, Why? okay, 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 okay. Um, uh, you know I'm a founding member of Soho Beach House? You are? Yeah. Oh, he's looking at, that's where I stayed in Miami. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I uh, I uh, sat down and like focused. I knew like so many things would start popping up mm-hmm. when um, we started talking that I really wanted to focus. Um, uh, I guess... Like, what are you seeing with the current state of the business? What's inspiring and innovative to you? Well, I think the, one of the best parts of the business right now, um, which <clears throat> was scary because we supposedly had lost our physical side. Right. And it's like streams. It doesn't pay for anything. There are two things that I like about streams. Number one, I don't have any manufacturing costs. Yeah. So if I need to change something, whatever happens, it digitally can change, like, you know, a Word doc. By the way, <laughs> so I saw that happen tonight in real time. You were, like, releasing a song and putting pressure on yourself. Like, let's release it, and I can go change it. Yeah, basically. But, I mean, it was just that whole <laughs> and idea. we were talking about Kanye. <laughs> Kanye. And, you know, the thing is not all, like, I try not to do it after it's released right. unless there's an issue. But in general, like up until the minute, it's like when when artists are working, 
you know, like a Drake or somebody. Like, it's not done. Until we actually have to hand in the album, the album's not done. We might do that last song at the last hour at the end of the night. Right. And wow, that's the one that actually pushes it over the edge. So you keep working. So I feel like the same way. When I'm doing stuff, I'm looking at the artwork, you know, I'm feeling out the music, and I'm actually listening to the mix. Sometimes it's just where it is, and it's been there for years. Sometimes I'm actually still touching it and kind of moving and going. And I think most of the artists that have the experience where they had to be at mastering at a certain time, whatever it was, they actually worked up until the night of. That might be a few sleepless nights right before because they're also getting the energy because they know that the people are going to hear it soon. You know what? Um, I want to talk about the business, but on that part of like working on a song or going to a deadline or focusing, I heard something recently and I've been dying to have a conversation with like another producer about it. Um, I was listening to Rick Rubin has that podcast with Malcolm Gladwell and mm. he was talking to Ezra Koenig from Vampire Weekend, who I love. And by the way, that is a brilliant record. Father of the Bride, you gotta listen to that. Okay. Like that is one of my favorite records of 2019. Um, and on the podcast, Ezra played a song and Rick came back like Yoda and he said, you played that for me six months ago. I would say it sounds 3% different, but it's 100% better. And then they wow. just kept talking about something else. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what does that mean? How is that possible? What was the 3%? And then, you know, that's where all of a sudden... Like my life flashes before my eyes and I think about Dre, nothing coming out of the studio. Like mm -hmm. how much different does that 3% make versus now people are releasing so much music at such a fast pace. Where do you find yourself in all of that? Um, well, I definitely like to have records to put out. So I don't like to hoard stuff. The song that I'm putting out next week, I have had it for 11 years. Um, on purpose or like you just came back to it like there's a thing where Lost Professor said a long time ago on his first album he said save the bass line for a beat uh -huh. like to me I'm watching the crowd I'm a DJ so you know I'm looking for the summertime I'm looking for the moment and the opportunity that where it feels right or you know previously I was looking for a certain marketing aspect but right. when I stop expecting marketing if I don't get playlists if I don't call this person and all these perfect supposed things you know what, let the music go. If it's supposed to be there, it'll be there in six months, a year. I'm just at a let the music go period in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but that 3%, I technically don't like to um, make bounces or record. Rec like I don't like to make copies of records until I sit with it and live with it for a minute. Because sometimes what you feel in the room may not be what's in the speaker. Totally. So I don't like to do that. And just like what Rick said, it might be 3% better, but it might just be some levels. The intention is there, but the execution might not be spot on. It might just be a little tweaking. And then I actually want to sit here and be like, okay, it feels urgent enough. It feels focused enough. And then I know when to give up the copy of the records. And sometimes it never happens. Hmm. Like if I feel like I'm uh, cooking food for an impossible person, it'll never happen because I'll just be like, why am I trying to feed this head of promotion who's head of a label a song with an artist who didn't give me anything that's good? It's not going to happen. So those songs might not ever really come. There's a few artists that will hit me up now and be like, hey, 
I really want to do the song and I'm just listening to it. It's like, it's not good enough, but yeah. I, I don't know why yet or if it is. No, I, I get it. I get why a Dre might sit down and say that's there. But then on the flip side, I've made a jazz album with Terrence Martin off of a jam session that we would just hear a couple of days eating and laughing and playing instruments. And then I'll get back at it and be like, no, edit this over here, move that over there. Cause I like having the opportunity to put stuff out. And now that I've, you know, I talked to Buster yesterday and he's like, yeah, I have 700 songs I've recorded over 10 years. I'm like what? what's going to happen to them? Yeah. What are you going to do with them? And he's like, I'm emotionally connected to these records because I want to make sure that they get the proper promotion and get the opportunity to flourish that they should. And I'm like, you know what happens? Take it and put everything in the spot where it should be. And the ones that were supposed to do that will raise their hand. And that's kind of there. And I'm really conflicted about that. Like, um, and when I think about it, I think of all the Prince records that exist, right? Right. And I don't know. Like, if putting out all of it, I mean, not all of it, but but you still go through it and you comb through it and feel like, okay, this is it. You know, Nas is putting out lost tapes. Right. So he's like, oh, man, I don't know. I mean, this is not, I don't. And that's how he was with the first old tapes. Yeah. It's always something like that. You know, that was 17 years ago. But in general, you go through a place where you want to make things and, you know, have a certain energy and make sure it's there. Like, he's putting out a song that I've always loved and try to, should have been on every album since the last, for the last 10 years. But... He didn't think it was time yet. So he's so just now going to put out your favorite record. Yep. It's probably my favorite record of his. Like when people say, what's the favorite song you want to listen to? And it's really, you know, it's not even much of a beat. It's really a, like a funny interlude on the beat. But I love the conversation. Hmm. I can't, what's it called? I can't wait to hear it. Can you say? You mean the world to me. Okay. Interesting. So what else are you finding interesting or innovative or inspiring about like this current state of the music business? I think that's number one, that you can actually create stuff, um, do it. The bad part is that um, it's a bit of South by Southwest with bad shoes. Oh, um, before birds like and just, scooters. Just, just the fact that you can end up walking. Oh, I'm going to gonna say that all the time. <laughs> By the way, P.S., it started here. If somebody has an idea or they want me to do something and I don't want to do it, it's tough by Southwest with bad shoes. And the reason why I'm saying that is that you have a whole lot of groups that are doing things that are pocketed for 10 people. Hey, where? Go to this bar on 50 blocks away uh, you probably have to walk there, but it's nice. And there'll be 10 people in there jumping up and down yeah. to a song that's only nice to this 10 people. You have pocketed audiences because of the fact that anybody can make anything. But what you don't have as much of is something that everyone says, this is amazing. I need this. You have different spaces. So you end up with um, a lot of people not necessarily doing the work to make their best, best music because you have 200 people in every city that this happened across the country telling them that that they're great. It's so weird, though. I I wonder if it'll ever be that way again because, like, you look at some of the biggest pop artists in the world making big pop records now and nobody cares because it's like it's not for me. It's for everybody. And I think people are going into a phase where they like what they like. Like, I'll tell you, I did... um, I had uh, I was doing something focused on pop culture and I had an intern ask 50 kids at USC 
what are five things in pop culture you're obsessed with, right? right? Just that prompt. And, you know, you might think it'd come back Game of Thrones or, like, Drake. Oh, my God. 50 people responded with five each. There were only two answers that got two. Wow. Everything else was different. Right. Because it's like, yeah, two people might have liked J. Cole, but like this one person is obsessed with this queer comedian YouTuber, right? Like people, I mean, it's like the uniqueness is coming out or people like like what they like. And that's what it's always going to be from now on. You know, the aspect was there. But then once again, there'll be a lot of people rapping and yeah. then there will be a whole lot of people that like Drake because he focused on the music and he hit a nerve that a lot of people could relate to. Drake also hit the medium, there's turn up and then there's emo. Right. So there's like the sad kids and then it's like, hey, I'm trying to pop it off another night. He was able to cross both of them and get enough people out. But also his songwriting is really good and he focused on the music. Drake has more uh, hour-long projects than he has hour-long interviews. Yeah. Wow. I've never heard it put like that. He's a rapper, not a yapper. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And at the end of the day, whatever he was feeling, whatever you think about his emotions, 98% of the time it came out in a song rather than coming out in a conversation publicly. Right. Right. He has musicians around. He keeps a camp. And they were there, you know, before the Apple Music, they were on SoundCloud, two or three songs in the middle of the night on a Tuesday. And you'd be like, what's this? You know, some of the songs... I love the motion with sample on it. I don't think it's on the album anywhere. I love um, How About Now. I don't think it's on the album anywhere. Um, so at the end of the day, it wasn't like, well, this music's good because it's coming out on the label and it's getting promotion. This music's good because this is how I feel tonight. Right. I don't know if I ever want to hear that again. I'm not doing that. That was his expression. But it has to become a form of you should be there. You know, I, I've been the best man for one person in my life, one of my best friends. He had a wedding in St. Martin. And I feel like there were a whole lot of people there, camera phones, photographer, everyone. But nobody caught my best man speech. And everyone else there was like, wow, that was a movie. Like, it was a moment. It caught everyone the way that I set it up and I dropped a song at the end of it. But no one has a recording. But guess what? You had to be there. Yeah. And that's how life is in certain aspects. You had to be there. So, you know, once again, back to the point of the business, it's great that everyone now gets a shot and it doesn't cost as much, but then somebody still has to be better than other ones. Hmm. Um, I guess the thing I'll end on is what do you want people to know? About me or in general? Well, let's go a few different ways. <coughs> okay. Okay. Um, what do you want people to know about what's going on with your music now and where they can find you? Okay. Well, I mean, I guess the easiest place to find me is probably IG. Um, it'll look like a video store or Crazy Eddie with a whole lot of screens with music on it. Different music on each screen. But um, in general, you know, I'm on social media, so I'm Remy. Facebook, Twitter, IG. Um, musically, I'm in the middle of my Do It For The Culture 2 project. 2016, I put out 50 songs one time. 
come through and chill was really the one that stuck stuck but then i put out you know two or three albums and other projects mirror may in the uk is still going all the projects and all the people are still doing great but i decided this time to use the 50 years of the week rather than the 50 uh songs at one time and just keep coming back over and over and just you know now people are starting to say wow did he just put out another project wow this is solid did he put out another song? Wow, that's a solid. And it's all and you punch. featuring other people. <clears throat> yes, it's all me featuring other people, which I think it just works out also because sometimes an artist may not really believe that this is their record and what they want us to do. But, you know, with it being my record featuring them, they also are saying, well, this is his vision. I'm just helping complete it because all the music that I make at this point is me having an idea and me utilizing someone else's voice just to complete my vision right so that's pretty much where i'm at now you know I've, I've done a lot of different things um but the music that you will hear from me now is part of my heart coming out in music i love that what do you want artists to know or creatives let's say creatives um just think outside the box you know there's, there's always a thing where you go along with what's going on but then there's a time when you go the opposite direction you know, there's a time when you make the record with no drums and a finger snap. There's a time when you use chord changes. There's a part where you use your falsetto instead of your low voice. Just think outside the box and, um, you know, we want to hear the passion and we want to hear the pain. We want to hear, use your poetic license. You know, you don't have to say the same thing that everyone else said. Uh, use your uh, ability to look different, to have things that look different visually you know just just be creative you know at the end of the day and don't be afraid to be different and what um do you want people to know about you i want people to know that um i'm chilling <laughs> like wherever it is if you never see me again just know i'm somewhere chilling you know at the end of the day i'm real cool and i allow uh the art to speak for the art space. But at the end of the day, I'm a cool dude. I like jokes and I'm chilling. I don't know what else y'all doing. But really, that's interesting. I'm chilling though. Bye. But I mean, <laughs> the coolest dude. And thank you. I mean, I, you. I really appreciate you for who you are, who you show up as, as a friend. And like, just what, I mean... I go through some of these songs and they're songs that are so powerful. It's like you can remember exactly a moment in life that they were all attached to. And somebody told me once that like no matter what music you loved when you were 16 to 20, like nothing's going to sound better for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, definitely. And like there were a lot of records at your earlier career that fit in that pocket for me. And even things like Girl on Fire. You know, mm-hmm. there are moments in my life where, like, I needed strength, and who knew a dude was working on that record? <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely Alicia's uh, voice and her strength that she pushed out. Because I think she did an interview, and she's like, somebody said, you're like a girl on fire. And she's like, wow. She ran with that. But just in general, you know, the the mode. And at that time, it was really funny. That year, everybody's project I worked on, I had the title track. I had Back to Love with Anthony Hamilton. I had uh, Kaleidoscope Dream with Miguel. I had A Beautiful Surprise with Tamia. It was just like everything that I was working on, it kind of 
became the headline. The music that we worked on became the headline for their whole story for that project. And, you know, that's great to me because, you know, when when you tell someone a long story, it's like, okay, this is what you do. That, 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 that. Okay, cool. That's where you walk away with it. Right. And that's fun, being able to summarize what all this means. Yeah. Well, seriously, thank you. Because, um, I mean, you put so much heart into everything you do. And like I said, like so many of these songs have my heart. And I'm happy you're chilling. I see you in your mango trees. Oh, yeah. You know, mango tree. I got a scotch bonnet tree, habanero tree for those other people that will call it that. But Can you eat it? The scotch bonnets? Oh, yeah. They're, they're hotter than who knew. So yeah. I actually am utilizing. Like, what do you even do? You can't even pick a scotch bonnet and then, like, touch your eye. Oh, not right, right away. I pick, like, five today, um, put them in a the fridge and stuff. But basically what I do with them is, um, you know, just use them to cook. But I love the fact I have a tree. Do you so cook? I, Actually, yeah, I've been cooking them, you know, since I did my vegan adventure. I actually, my thing was with being vegan, if I ate celery and quinoa every day, it wasn't going to work. So the reason why I was able to do it for three years was because I really cooked and I had Jamaican flavors and Italian flavors and I was in my garlic and, you know, I've got basil printed and thyme and all this other stuff. So the fact that I was able to take the scotch bonnet and still make the gravy with some rice and peas that I actually love then that kept me able to stick with not necessarily being in the dairy or uh, meat business because everything else was great. It's all creative. Cooking up a record, cooking up the scotch bonnets. Cooking up an environment, you know, cooking up a convo. Yeah. But seriously, I think um, maybe we will do a part two of this at some time in L.A. But thank you for all the time because I love your stories and I love your brain and um, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Idea Fountain. I love hearing from you and what you took away from this episode. Salam drops so many gems. If you want to hit me up, either check out at the Idea Fountain on Instagram or the site, theideafountain.co. I appreciate you spreading the word and telling friends and let me know if there's anything you need as well. Community is everything, and I'm so glad you're a part of mine.